Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23, the topic, Paul illustrates your Christian life as if you are on a voyage home in a fully supplied ship. The title of our message, You've Been Ordered to Abundant Ship. Let's have a word of prayer. That's a groaner, but it works. Father, thank you so much for this gathering of saints and sinners, Lord. I pray that we would hear you speaking to us through the word, by your spirit. If there are people here that aren't Christians, Lord, they've never given their heart to you, they've never been born again, uh, woo them, Lord, by the love that you showed on the cross, that you demonstrated on the cross, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us there. Give us insight into this word, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. The Swiss Army Knife, advertised as the ultimate multi-tool, maybe some of you are buying some for Christmas gifts this year, if so, I've got some suggestions here. Uh, The model we're most familiar with, the Swiss Champ, features 33 separate tools. Pretty cool. There's a larger model that features 81 separate tools. It has a digital clock even in the handle. They promote it as the ultimate companion for indoor and outdoor life. Then there's the Giant, manufactured by Wenger. The Giant is the world's largest Swiss Army knife. 141 functions into 87 implements. It is nine inches wide and weighs 32 ounces. Sells for $8,500. Go to (laughs) smile.amazon.com and let's get that fundraising going for the CPC. You should sit later on. That's why I gave you the whole name. It's Wenger, W-N-G-E-R, the giant. And, go, and you, it's amazing when it opens up on, on uh, Amazon. It almost won't fit in the screen. It's so big. I don't know who carries it or uses it, uh, but it's, it's pretty impressive. Now, theoretically, carrying a Swiss Army knife, you're ready for anything you might encounter in your daily life. What if I told you that if you are in Christ, you are spiritually ready for anything you might encounter in your daily life? Well, the Apostle Paul thought so. In verse 10, he said, you are complete in him. That word complete is a nautical word. It would be used to describe a ship that is totally fitted and supplied for its voyage. You are totally fitted and supplied for your voyage home to heaven. You simply need to draw from your supply by faith in Jesus. Simple, but not always easy. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, be confident that you are complete in Christ. And number two, don't become convinced that you are incomplete in Christ. Let's take a look at our confidence in verses 6 through 15. And I said that the word complete was used of a ship fully supplied, but all illustrations tend to fall short. It's Thanksgiving weekend, so let's discuss the provisions on the Mayflower. One historical record I read said this. The passengers and crew ate different things at different stages of the voyage. In the beginning, when there was fresh food and calm seas, they most likely ate stews made of meat and vegetables. When the storms came, no one could light cooking fires. Then people ate hard biscuits, dried meat and fish, and drank ale or water if there was any left. Because the journey was longer than expected, food supplies were very low and the ship anchored. During the months when the passengers lived on the ship while they built their houses, many people died of malnutrition. Now, we tend to think of a fully supplied ship as running low or out of supplies over the course of its journey. But our voyage home never lacks for spiritual supply. It can't because the supply comes from our being in Christ. And so it's a good analogy, a good illustration with that adjustment. Verse 6, 
as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. How do you receive Jesus? Well, God the Holy Spirit frees your will to respond to God's gracious offer of salvation brought to you by the gospel, the good news. And then you simply believe by faith. Believing is not a work. It is a response to God's free gift of grace. Verse 6 goes on and says, as you have therefore received him, so walk in him. You believed God to save you for eternity. Now believe him to supply you for the voyage home. Just a few words, but really critical to what Paul is going to teach. Uh, because he, what he gets into here in summary basically is that we have a tendency to get off track by thinking that we have to add something to what Jesus has already done in order for us to have victory and to be supplied. And so Paul says, no, you got saved, and that was a pretty big deal. And you are going to continue to walk in Christ that same way by grace through faith. In another place, in one of our favorite scriptures, he said, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by keeping the flesh and ordinances of the flesh and laws of the flesh and things like that? And so we start by faith, we continue by faith. If nothing else, you're going to go home today and realize that anything that is spiritual, that is a resource, I have access to it right now all the time, whether I just got saved or whether I've been saved for decades. Paul first describes Jesus as our supplier. He uses three illustrations, and the first is walking. You're to believe that the Lord is with you every step of the way every day. Think footsteps in the sand. And so the first supply, we would say, and it's huge, is Jesus. The fact that you are in Christ, that he is your friend and companion, that you have a relationship with him, uh, that you can go to him at all times, uh, that is your first supply. Uh, seven, verse seven, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Rooted is a new analogy. It refers to a tree's roots. He's saying here, you are rooted in Jesus and thus every spiritual nutrient, all spiritual life is available to you. It flows into you supernaturally. And so you see Paul is making a, a, an argument here that you are abundantly supplied. Uh, you are rooted in Christ and, and that's a great place to be rooted because he has spiritual nutrition for you. From agriculture, Paul moves to architecture when he says built up in him. Now he's telling you that Jesus is an unshakable, immovable foundation. And so whatever might happen to your part of the building because of your ups and downs, you're solid on the rock. And then Paul said, you're established in the faith as you have been taught. Now, honestly, they hadn't been taught very much, not as far as doctrine. And so he's really not talking about what he had taught them, but how he had taught them to continue, and that is by faith, trusting in God's supply. Paul told them to be abounding in it with thanksgiving. Since you are abounding with spiritual resources, you can always be thankful in all things. You don't necessarily be thankful for all things. A lot of terrible things happen to all of us, but in them you can find a gratitude for the resources that you need at the time to endure spiritually. Verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now this verse and these false teachings he's going to expound upon 
at the end of the chapter. We'll see more about that there. But for now, he says, don't let anybody cheat you. And that is the word spoil used of plundering. These false teachings would cut them off from their abundant spiritual supply. And so Paul is giving them a warning that they're always going to have to be on guard that uh, someone is going to come in and say, oh, you need more than just salvation by grace through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have to add things, and we'll see what some of those are. And he say, no, that's a cheat. They are spoiling you. They're taking away resources, not adding them. They come in telling you they're going to give you something that will help you in your Christian walk, but in fact, they're removing what is most helpful. And so verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Godhead means deity, and it encompasses what the Bible teaches about God. We know that there is one God, but he says that the Bible says that there was a man, Jesus Christ, who claimed equality with God, and there is someone called the Holy Spirit who is also equal with God. The Father is God, Jesus Christ is God, the Holy Spirit is God, not three gods, but one God in three persons. Paul said the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus bodily. He isn't just super spiritual. He isn't just tapping into divine power sources. He isn't just a great teacher or an insightful philosopher. He was and he is fully God. You know, a lot of people are, well, first of all, a lot of people don't even know who Jesus is anymore as a, even a historical figure. That's something, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you need to refresh yourself and think, hey, the person I'm talking to may not have even ever heard the name of Jesus except in a swear word. And it sounds odd, but people don't have a context for this. But there are people who've heard of Jesus, and they would be willing to say, oh, yeah, Jesus, great philosopher, great teacher. Uh, if we would only follow what he said on the Sermon on the Mount, the world would be a better place, those kinds of things. As Josh McDowell liked to say, Josh McDowell, great Christian apologist, he'd say, Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or he was the Lord. You don't get to say that he was a great teacher because he, if he was a great teacher, he also taught that he was God. He said, I am. He made himself equal with God. And so if all he is is a great teacher, then he's a lunatic at the same time. But he wasn't just a great teacher. He was a great teacher because he was God, the God-man, God come in human flesh. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus bodily. Jesus did not surrender his deity in the incarnation, nor did he surrender his humanity in the resurrection. He is the God-man. And this is one reason why no one else can save you, because only Jesus has the righteousness you need to be saved, and, and uh, no other religious leader, take Buddha, for example, he, he didn't have any righteousness of his own. He can't give you righteousness. And he was only a man. And so if he died, he died for himself. Whereas Jesus was the God-man. He died in your place as the God-man and therefore can save you. And so it's very important that we know who Jesus is and was and that we believe that he is God. Verse 10, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You are fully supplied by virtue of being in Jesus. All that he has as resources are yours. Whatever is true of him is true of you. He is the head of all principality and power. These are supernatural beings, and they can be benevolent or malevolent depending on the context. Here, Paul means to remind you that Jesus is in charge. He is the head, having all authority over the universe. 
You never need think he is unaware of you and your needs or that his resources are somehow insufficient. We should always think abundant, not abandoned. Now, the first thing that happens when you get into a trial of something, you get terrible news, uh, you, can, you can immediately feel abandoned and alone as if the Lord has just left you in the middle of nowhere. But our first thought needs to be abundant. Where are the abundant resources I need in order to uh, show God's strength and reveal his glory during this time? And so uh, that's what Paul is saying. Hey, think abundant because that is how you've been supplied. Uh, the Lord is not taking things from you. He's giving you opportunity to bring forth more of his abundant supply. Some of those supplies are listed. They're unusual, spiritual ones, but they're important. So in verse 11, in him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hand. So not a physical circumcision, a spiritual one. It is the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so if you are a Christian, you were, past tense, circumcised. The moment you trusted Jesus as your Savior, he spiritually circumcised you. He does it by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Now, when you get saved, you find that within you still dwells the flesh. It is what we understand to be the unredeemed human body with its propensity to sin by desiring to gratify itself. So you get saved and you become aware that the Holy Spirit is living within you. You have the divine nature and you want to serve God and, and do things that are pleasing to God, but you also find still a, a propensity to sin, a, a power, as it were, within you to say no to God and yes to flesh. And, and so uh, this becomes the struggle of the flesh versus the spirit. But what we're learning here from Paul is that your flesh has been circumcised. He means it's been cut away, and therefore you never need to yield to its influences and desires. You can always say no to your flesh. And so the idea that you can't not sin, uh, that, that there was nothing you could do about it, not a biblical notion. We do sin, and when we sin, we need to seek God's uh, gracious forgiveness, and he is, he'll give it because of the cross of Jesus Christ. But the idea is, is that you can go into tomorrow, wake up in the morning, go into tomorrow thinking, I don't have to sin. I don't have to give in to my unredeemed flesh. It's going to want me to. It's going to try and make me to. It's going to try and trick me and, and all of this. But I can say no to it because I have been spiritually circumcised when I became a Christian. That was cut away from me and I can follow Christ. The next supply on the list is baptism. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, we immediately think of water baptism, but there are other baptisms listed in the New Testament that do not involve water. We talk about different baptisms, like the bap somebody has a baptism of fire, uh, maybe they get into a situation that is really intense, and obviously it's not water baptism. It has to do with their, uh, their behavior in a certain situation. Paul was talking about a spiritual baptism that occurs the moment you're saved. It means that God sees you as if you too were buried and raised with Jesus from the dead. You appropriate this truth through faith in the working of God. That means you simply believe it. And what this provides you in terms of supply for your journey is the understanding that you have new life in Jesus Christ 
And it's not that you can just say no to sin, as great as that is, you also can say yes to God and surrender to Him moment by moment. And so you were circumcised in the flesh, uh, spiritually speaking, so you don't have to sin, but now you're also raised with Jesus Christ through this baptism, and that means that you have power to do the things that God tells you to do. Uh, You're not neutral anymore. And so when I read the Bible, God tells me to love my wife or submit to my husband or any of these things, that includes the power to do it. I don't have to figure out necessarily how to do it. Now, over time, I get better at it because I'm maybe lame at first, uh, but I can do it. If you got saved later in life, you know all of this is true because one minute you were on a certain path and the next second after the Holy Spirit came inside of you, you did a 180 you weren't sinning the way you used to, all of a sudden your life was completely changed because you simply believed in Jesus Christ. We make it more difficult after we've been saved because we start adding things and and acting like we can't really do this thing. When I got saved, most of you have heard my testimony. It's, it's, It's a pretty simple testimony. But when I got saved, I was a drunk and I smoked pot all the time and I hated my wife. And uh, when Pam got saved, she was a pothead and she hated her husband. And that's each other, by the way. And so uh, then I got saved. I prayed the sinner's prayer after God had been dealing with my heart for a while. And I, I didn't drink. It's not that I quit drinking. I didn't drink. It's not that I quit smoking marijuana. I didn't do it anymore. And I loved my wife. And the same thing happened with Pam. She loved me. She quit smoking pot. We did some other things like get rid of records and pour booze out, you know, all that kind of stuff that you do. But it was a power that, that was resident within us by faith. It wasn't that no one came and said, hey, now, you know, there wasn't a knock on the door. The, the salvation squad didn't come and say, hey, now that you've received Christ, we're here to pour out all your booze, and we're like weeping, oh, no, I spent so much money on that. You know, it didn't happen that way. It's just all of a sudden, I realized I didn't want to drink anymore. I didn't want to be a drunk. Uh, you know, I, I didn't want to smoke pot. I had something better, something greater, and I was on a new path. Uh, and so that's what Paul is saying is that you need to, con- he's telling these guys, you guys need to continue that way. You got saved. All this great stuff happened, continue that way. You say no to sin because of circumcision and yes to Jesus because of this baptism. And then he says, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, Paul was writing to mostly non-Jews, to Gentiles. Their condition before the gospel was hopeless. They suffered from a double whammy. First of all, they were dead in trespasses. That means they were physically alive but spiritually dead. That is the condition of every human being born into the world. You're physically alive, soulishly active, but spiritually dead, not in a relationship with God. But if you're a Gentile, you found yourself in what is called here the uncircumcision of the flesh. This is a reference to physical circumcision. And what Paul is saying is this. If you wanted to know God before the coming of Jesus Christ you had to convert to Judaism because that was God's program at the time. And so if you were a Gentile seeking God, you had to convert to Judaism. And one of the uh, things that that the Jews had come to, to do is call Gentiles the uncircumcision. Now, there were Gentiles who got circumcised physically, but it's not a physical thing. 
because God said to Abraham, part of my covenant with the Jews is that they practice circumcision, uh, they started calling all non-Jews the uncircumcision. And so Paul is saying that, hey, as a Gentile, you, you suffered under this double whammy. Not only you were a hell-doomed sinner, but you used to have to convert to Judaism in order to be saved, but that's no longer true after Jesus rose from the dead. All of that he's going to explain to us in a second has been put away. And now, how is this a spiritual resource? It's a spiritual resource because you're no longer under the law, under the burden of the law to keep the law. You're able to keep it through loving the Lord. And so verse 4, having wiped out the ha- 14, excuse me, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Paul called God's law the handwriting of requirements. The words literally mean a certificate of debt. When you read God's law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, you found yourself owing God a debt. And if you're honest, you'll see that it's a debt you could never hope to pay. It's a debt of sin, and the wages of sin is death, and so you deserve death. That's what the law tells us. Paul says the law was against you. Staying with the image of debt, this means it has gone to collection. Contrary means the debt collector calls upon you to pay it in full. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but if you've ever been in debt collection, it's no fun. One thing you find out about being in foreclosure is that you can't make partial payments. You'll send in a partial payment, they'll hold it for a while, and then they'll send it back because of the way the law reads, you have to make the full payment. And so Paul is saying, you have a debt of sin, and it's due, and they're here to collect, but the, and that debt was death, Uh, but the moment you are saved, you discover that Jesus did three things for you. He wiped out the debt. That means he erased it by paying it for you. He took it out of the way. That means he has permanently separated you from any further obligation to keep it. And he nailed it to the cross, meaning it was all fully and finally accomplished when he substituted himself in death for you on the cross at Calvary. You remember Jesus' final words, right, on the cross? What were they? It is what? Finished? Yeah, he didn't say it's just about done. As soon as I rise from the dead and these other guys come in and start teaching you these other weird things, it'll be over. And I said, man, it is finished. The law was finished. Judaism was finished in that sense. And a whole new way of life was born. And as I said, now you no longer labor under God's law trying to keep it. Instead, you find that your love for God encourages you to walk with him in a manner that is pleasing to him as your heavenly father. At a boss one time, he told me a story. They were on his, uh, him and his wife and their two small children were on their way somewhere driving, I don't know, across the desert where there's long, you know, straightaways. And he was going like 100 miles an hour. You know, I don't know what the speed limit was, but it wasn't 100. And uh, he's just cruising along. And all of a sudden he thought to himself, I wonder what would happen if I had a blowout at 100 miles an hour. How would this affect my family? And so he slowed down and started the speed limit. Uh, And and what I realized when he told me that was that what the law could not do in getting him to slow down, love accomplished. Because he loved his family more than he wanted to break the law. And so that's, it's not a great illustration. There are no great illustrations, but that's the idea. You, You, it's not that we're lawless, that we don't keep the law. We keep it for a different reason and we keep it without it being a burden and without thinking it makes us more spiritual. We simply do it because it's the right thing to do. 
Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Context here is the cross, and so the principalities and powers he's talking about here are evil and malicious. Uh, Jesus made a spectacle of them on the cross. And so this is kind of a stinger in this sense. The abundant supply we are promised for our voyage home often involves suffering and endurance. It mostly is God giving sufficient grace for him to show his strength in our weakness. And so we're talking about this marvelous supply, all that the Lord has done for us, and he ends this section by saying, and you see it most on the cross where Jesus defeated all of our foes and made victory possible. And then you remember that we're to pick up our cross daily and walk with him. And so these are resources and supply that give us the ability to endure suffering and patiently wait for the coming of Christ. A.W. Tozer said, the cross is the suffering the Christian endures as a consequence of following Christ in obedience. Christ chose the cross by choosing the path that led to it, and it is so with his followers. In the way of obedience stands the cross, and we take the cross when we enter that way. Choose obedience, knowing it means the cross, but then be confident in God's abundant spiritual supply. The rest of the verses don't become convinced that you are incomplete in Christ. On our voyage, we can indeed behave as though our supplies are rationed or that we are unable to light a fire. We can suffer spiritual malnutrition, and it sometimes happens when we let false teaching interfere with our abundant supply. So let's look at some of that. Verse 16, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. The first century church was plagued by a false teaching that a Gentile believer must, in addition to receiving Jesus, convert to Judaism. And so Paul would go into a city, he would preach the gospel, Gentiles and Jews would get saved, uh, he would establish a church, he'd stay as long as he could, but many times he got run out of town by persecution. Uh, and, and then these other guys would come in, they'd follow him around, Judaizers, and they'd say, hey, what Paul did was great in getting you started, but now here's what you really need in order to be saved. You need to, and we'll see some of the things they're going to recommend. One thing to keep in mind, why weren't these guys just out evangelizing people? If, if what they taught was the truth, that you needed Jesus Christ plus Judaism, why not just go out to the uh, city square or to the synagogue like Paul was to try and save people. Instead, they targeted people who were already saved. You know, when people come in with a doctrine, even a Christian doctrine, and they're all about that, and they target Christians and tell you you're not really a Christian or you don't know enough because you don't believe this doctrine, you don't believe this particular systematic theology, I say, go preach that to non-believers. Leave us alone. We're doing fine. We're saved. We're tapping into all these spiritual resources. We don't need to get off track. And it causes division in, in churches, and it's terrible. So be wary of people who come to you with some special doctrine, even if it's a Christian doctrine. You know, there's a lot of things we can agree to disagree on and still be Christians together. And when people get all up in their, you know, crib about a particular doctrine, uh, just be careful. And so these guys, what did, they, what did they want? They talked about food. That refers to the Old Testament dietary law. In fact, they talked about food and drink. There were less laws regarding drink, but there were some. And so they said, look, 
you want to follow Jesus Christ, you need to be under the Jewish dietary laws. And you'll hear people say this today still, that what God said in the Old Testament is still binding. Uh, they try and convince you that it's healthier for you and that God knew, you know, God, I guess, knew that it would kill you to eat bacon. And, and so he, he's, he's, you know, trying to protect you from eating bacon or he just likes pigs and doesn't want pigs to die for you. And, so, and you know, so they say you have to keep these dietary laws. Not true. Paul's saying don't let anyone judge you. In other words, don't be fooled by this. Festival uh, has to do with the Jewish uh, calendar as, as does new moon. And so he's saying, they're telling you that you have to, even though these things have been fulfilled, like the Passover, Jesus, the Bible says, is our Passover. They say, well, you still need to celebrate the Passover and uh, go through the motions because it'll help you in your Christian life. And then Sabbath days includes all the scriptural and extra scriptural teaching about resting from sundown Friday through sundown Saturday. I don't need to tell you that there's a lot of people that are Sabbatarians and that they think, hey, you're blowing it if you're not worshiping on Saturday. In fact, some people go so far to say that if you worship on Sunday, Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. I don't know if they still have those magazines. When I come out of the post office uh, in Hanford, they have that row of free magazines. They're free for a reason. Uh, anyway, the, one of them was always from a religious group, and, and they always talked about how Sunday worship was the Antichrist. And so I think, hey, I'm really interested in this. Let me take this whole stack and bring them over to the trash can where they belong. But uh, that's the idea. These guys are saying, hey, you, you know, you're, you're Christians, but you're not really saved, not fully saved until you're also Jews. Verse 17, he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substances of Christ. I always picture two people talking to each other in the high noon sun and talking to each other's shadows instead of talking to each other. It, wouldn't you think that was weird? If you met somebody this afternoon after church and they started talking to your shadow, you'd find one of our security guys. <laughs> and so Paul says, hey, these are all shadows. Don't go back into the shadows. Jesus is the real deal. He's the substance. This was his shadow until he came and died and rose from the dead. Don't go back there. It's something that's done. It's over. It's fulfilled its purpose. Let no one, verse 18, cheat you of your reward. Don't give in to these kinds of things and thereby lose your joy now and your future reward in heaven. Taking delight in false humility, the worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not yet seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Uh, these things generally are summarized by the term mysticism, uh, the idea that, that you have some kind of a false humility because of your spirituality and the, you know, you let people know you get up at 4 a.m. and spend the first 24 hours of each day in prayer and, you know, that kind of a thing. Worship of angels uh, is just what it means, that, that you think there are other supernatural beings or people that you can go to who will mediate between you and God. Intruding into things not seen are extra-biblical revelations, and vainly puffed up by your fleshly mind has to do with thinking that your intellect is uh, really important and that smarter people are somehow more spiritual. I found, and it's certainly in my case, that dumber people are more spiritual. <laughs> Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. In a normal, healthy, growing body, the head directs everything. If you disconnect the head from the body, it will deteriorate. 
Now, all these practices and those to come put distance between you and the Lord. They disconnect you. They introduce something that stands between you and the Lord, a technique, a mediator, a law. And so, you know, very easy. Guys are coming in. These people were saved. They were doing well. And they said, ah, you need to keep this diet. And now that's going to be something between you and the Lord. It's not going to make you more spiritual. It's going to make you less spiritual because you're thinking about something physical, not something spiritual. You're feeling more spiritual because, hey, I quit eating bacon. You're still eating bacon. I don't know how God can even love you. And those kinds of things. And, and, and Paul says, no, you, you don't want to be cut off. You don't want a mediator anymore. Jesus is our mediator. Verse 20, therefore, since you died with Christ... And that's a fact. When you became a Christian, the moment you were born again, God sees you as if what happened to Jesus happened to you. You died with Christ. You know, there are some advantages to being dead. You wouldn't have to be worried about paying taxes come April if you were dead. And if there's any pending litigation against you, it would just cease. Uh, Now, that's silly. You're not physically dead, so all those things still apply. But you're spiritually dead and resurrected. Therefore, you can live in the material world from a spiritual perspective in the power of a resurrected life. And that's what Paul next described. He says, verse 20, therefore, since you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. What Paul destroys in these verses, scholars sometimes call asceticism. It's a big word to, uh, you know, that I can't really uh, define well, but think monastery. Think about monks in a monastery or nuns in a nunnery And uh, that's the idea, is that you're going to get away from the world, and that is going to make you more spiritual. And Paul says, no, that's not going to happen at all. Rigorous self-denial on the physical level does nothing in terms of the spirit. And he says, you don't need it because you're already dead, and you don't need to do any of that stuff. So if you're thinking, I need to be more spiritual, I I need to put to death my flesh and just eat bread and water and not go through my life not talking making a vow of silence and all this. Paul says, no, you're spiritually already dead so that you can live in the world without it destroying you in a spiritual way for Christ. And so all of this stuff fails. We think it makes us more spiritual, but it doesn't. Verse 22, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Perish with the using is a good description of physical things like food and drink. Sin occurs when we abuse things, sure, But spirituality doesn't occur because we don't use things. Does that make sense? So I might might abuse alcohol and sin. The Bible says you're not to be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So drunkenness is sin. But it doesn't follow that if I don't drink at all, I am more spiritual. And so we have to be careful about things out in the world and our kind of ideas about what makes us more spiritual. Paul called things like this the commandments and doctrines of men. Doctrines refer to what they believe, and commandments refer to the specific rules they establish. And quite honestly, churches are all about establishing rules for you. Uh, Sometimes they're unspoken, but, you know, you just get the impression that, hey, this group of people frowns on me if I do this or if I don't do that. And we need to be really careful about that. I am not the Holy Spirit in your life. And so when people ask me, hey, can I do this? Uh, you know, and, and there's a list, you know what I'm talking about. Can, I, can a Christian do this? Why don't you figure that out? 
Are you being brought under the power of it? Why do you want to do it? I mean, there's a lot of questions you can ask yourself, but we can't come up with a list of do's and don'ts. We can talk about things that are actual sin, that are called sin in the Bible, and say you, can't, you shouldn't do that. Uh, but there's these gray areas, and if I don't do something, it doesn't make me more spiritual than anyone else for not doing it. That's a monastery kind of mentality. And so if you think, and I, if I think I'm holier than you because I've given something up, then I've already lost the battle because I'm puffed up with pride. So that's what Paul's talking about. Verse 23, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And so none of these things that he's talking about makes you more spiritual or helps you in your desire to overcome the flesh. In fact, they drag you down uh, by giving you a false sense of spirituality. As one writer put it, you don't need laws on the outside because you have life on the inside. Here's a quote that I liked. Most Christians make the mistake of trying to walk in order to be able to sit, but that is a reversal of true order. Our natural reason says if we do not walk, how can we ever reach the goal? What can we attain without effort? How can we get anywhere if we do not move? But Christianity is an odd business. If at the outset we try to do anything, we miss everything. For Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. Sounds weird, but I think you understand. Uh, Again, I go back to those of you who got saved later in life, you, you can relate to this. You realize that there was a big done, the cross of Jesus Christ where it is finished, and now you're born again, The Holy Spirit lives in you. You have power over sin. Uh, You're dead to the world and alive to God. I mean, you're, you're, you're ready and raring to go. Then over time, we start to get more into doing. Now, we should do because we love the Lord, but we start to think we do in order to maintain our salvation, in order to become more spiritual, and we start adding things, and and either overtly or covertly, we start thinking we're more spiritual because of what we do and don't do. And what Paul is saying, everybody is just as spiritual uh, as everybody else in one sense because you have access to all of the resources of God that you need right now. We mature because that's natural and because we want to be more like Jesus and, and all, but we don't have to wait to mature in order to have victory. And that's why I keep returning to that time of salvation. Oftentimes we need to remember the amazing victory that we had at the cross when we first got saved that we sometimes fall from. Now I feel like I'm, I'm suffering from spiritual malnutrition when in reality all the same resources are available to me that I had that day I met Christ. And so Paul wants to keep us on track. So, here's a question. How would you describe the seas that you're traveling right now? Whether you're enjoying calm seas and making some progress, or you're stuck in the doldrums, seemingly going nowhere, maybe you're riding out a fierce storm. Paul would say, you are fully supplied. Doesn't matter how old you are in the Lord, doesn't matter how spiritual you think you are, the storm is real, the doldrums are real, the glassy sea is real, and everything you need is in your voyage for you to be spiritually successful. And you continue that way by faith. 
not by doing anything, but by realizing it was done for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a faith thing. And that's why I would say that your captain is constantly telling you abundant ship. We think we need to abandon ship and find something better. Read the next book or, or you know, find the new prayer technique or walk through the labyrinth or whatever. And, and the Lord is saying, you, you are the abundantly supplied Christian. Walk in that. 